You're listening to a message that was recorded live at Roots Community Church in Costa Mesa, California. Roots exists to celebrate the glory of God through lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about our community, visit us at rootschurch.net. Father in heaven, before we attempt to read your word and understand it, and we're asking that you would convince us that we need it. What good is food before us if we don't think we're hungry? So God, would you grant a desperate hunger for your word? Would you grant an appetite for grace? And by your mercy, would you strengthen our bones? Would you lift our drooping hands? Would you encourage our troubled hearts as we look upon your word? Man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. May it be so for your glory and our joy. Amen. Genesis 43, we're going to read the whole chapter. Now the famine was severe in the land. And when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to them, the man solemnly warned us saying, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel, that is Jacob, said, why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? They replied, the man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, is this your, is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? And what we told him was in our answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, bring your brother down? Verse 8, and Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me. And we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. And if I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. And if we had not delayed, we would have now returned twice. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man, a little balm, a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio notes, and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise. Verse 13, go again to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, and may he send back your other brother and Benjamin As for me, I am bereaved of my children. I am bereaved. So the men took this present and they took double the money with them and Benjamin. They arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. 
Verse 16, when Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of the house, bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready for the, for the men are to dine with me at noon. Verse 17, the man did as Joseph told him and brought them into Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, it is because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we are brought in so that they may assault us and fall upon us and make us even servants and seize our donkeys. Verse 19, so they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house and said, oh, my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food. And when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks and there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we have brought it again with us, and we have brought our other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. He replied, peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. And when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water, and they had washed their feet, and when he had given their donkeys fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that they should eat bread there. Verse 26. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present that they had made with them and bowed down to him to the ground. Verse 27. And he inquired about their welfare and said, Is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? They said, your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. They bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. Verse 29, and he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out for his compassion, grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. Verse 31, then he washed his face and came out, and controlling himself, he said, serve the food. They served him by himself, verse 32, and then by themselves and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews for that was an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Verse 34, portions were taken to them from Joseph's table. But Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. And they drank and were merry with him. This is God's holy word. Please be seated. Come up just a little bit. As we have just read, we are continuing in our study of the book of Genesis this morning. And we come to chapter 43 in this great history of salvation. Chapter 43 chronicles the second of three journeys to Egypt by Joseph's brothers. Pharaoh's dreams interpreted by Joseph had come to pass. 
Seven years of abundant harvest were followed by seven years of famine. And those seven years of famine stretched beyond Egypt and into Canaan and and indeed the rest of the world. But because of the God-granted wisdom of Joseph, Egypt was prepared for the famine. They had saved from the abundance of those first seven years. And Egypt became a food distribution center, not only for Egyptians, but also the entire world. And so last week we learned of the brothers' first trip to Egypt to purchase food. And it's on this trip where they first encountered Joseph for the first time, though they could not recognize him after 20 long years of separation. The brothers did not recognize Joseph, but Joseph certainly recognized his brothers. And their encounter with him was met with interrogation and rough speech and testing. Joseph, understandably, is overcome with suspicion and emotion. What are the ambitions of these brothers of mine? Have they turned from their wicked ways and wicked hearts? And so he interrogates them and he tests them. Have you come to spy out the land? Yes, you've come to spy out the land, Joseph says to his brothers. Still not knowing that this is their brother, they bow before him as the now vizier of Rome, the ruler, the governor in charge of all of commerce in Egypt. The brothers associated their current trial and suffering with the discipline of God because of what they had done to Joseph all those years ago. See, God was beginning to work on these brothers' hearts. They didn't know full well what was happening to them, but God was leading them into godly sorrow and godly fear for what they had done to Joseph 20 years ago. And Joseph, you'll remember, he could hardly contain himself as he heard in his own language, in Hebrew, he heard them confess to their sins. He heard them express sorrow and remorse for what they had done. He heard for the first time his oldest brother Reuben say he didn't want any part of the plan and Joseph is overcome with emotion. Doesn't know what to do. So Joseph demands to see their youngest brother. Again, Joseph is wondering, are you, did you do to Joseph what you did, or rather to Benjamin, what you did to me out of jealousy? Because I was the favored son of my father? And now Benjamin, the only remaining son of Rachel, did you do the same thing to Benjamin? I want to see Benjamin, Joseph says. Bring your youngest with me or next time when you come. And Simeon, one of the brothers, was left in Egypt as collateral until the brothers would return with Benjamin. And so as we said last week, God is addressing not just one famine in the land but two. Of course, there is the food famine in the entire world that God is addressing. But there is a more severe moral famine that had taken over the hearts of these developing patriarchs, the sons of Jacob. There was a moral famine. These men were guilty of genocide. They were guilty of terrible sins against God. And so as severe as the first famine was, the second famine, the moral famine, had eternal consequences and required, listen, direct unilateral action by God to address. Moral famine 
in the hearts of human beings requires direct, unilateral action by God to address. It is a severe famine. And so we continue to watch now this morning in chapter 43 as God's purposeful providence takes shape in the lives of these brothers. God has already granted them godly guilt. They feel remorse over what they've done. God has already granted them sorrow and fear of God. But now he is about to grant them their first taste of divine mercy. Our first scene comes as desperate times require desperate measures. Our first of three movements in the chapter comes as food has run out again in Jacob's home. And he's feeding close to 300 people and food has gone scarce again. The resources from their first trip to Egypt have run out. And now the hunger pains and the groanings from Jacob's family begin to set in. And so Jacob orders his sons to take yet another trip to Egypt to purchase more food for the family. But Judah, one of his sons, reminds his father of the caution of the warning that they indeed cannot return back to the land unless they have their youngest brother Benjamin with them. The vizier, the the ruler of Egypt, has forbidden us to return, and we will not return back with food nor with Simeon if we do not bring Benjamin. That is our only hope. And so Judah pleads with his father. Look at verses 8 and following. Verse 8 says, And Judah said to Israel, his father, Send the boy with me. And we will arise and go and we will live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. Judah says to his father, Jacob, I will be the pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require require him. If I do not bring him back and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. Verse 10, if we had not delayed, we would have now returned twice. Again, we are seeing in Judah and the others a fear of the Lord that is beginning to overcome the desire for self-preservation. I mentioned last week that this is a sign of maturity when godly fear begins to overcome the desire, the natural desire for self-preservation. And when godly fear overcomes self-preservation, true courage is the result. Listen, true courage does not come from within. To find courage, you don't dig down deep, find it within you, this innate courage that you all have hidden within you. True courage does not reside from within. Instead, from a biblical perspective, please listen, true courage comes when one is convinced that they live before the face of God and therefore the need to self-preserve is replaced with the need to bring glory to God's name regardless of the cost. If you are convinced that God is the creator and the sustainer of your very life, 
and you have this reverential fear before his face, this need or this desire to self-preserve begins to eke out of your system. You don't need to self-preserve if God is preserving your very life, if indeed he has numbered your days. And so Judah is feeling this. He's feeling this godly fear, this living before the face of God, and it's replacing this desire for self-preservation. And he says to his father, I will be the pledge for his safety. Put this on me. If I do not come back with Benjamin, your youngest son, I will carry the blame forever. I will carry the shame upon my face. Godly fear is replacing self-preservation. And so Jacob then reluctantly agrees to send Benjamin with Judah and the others. What other choice does he have? There is no food. Hunger produces desperation, doesn't it? Jacob has been desperate before. This is not our first time reading about Jacob, the third of the three major patriarchs. He's been desperate before. Remember when he was about to meet Esau, Jacob? I don't know when we covered this. <laughs> Remember how fear had infused his entire body? Because Jacob, remember, was the one who swindled his oldest brother Esau out of his birthright and his blessing? And do you remember Jacob's last, or rather Esau's last words to Jacob? I'm going to kill you. As soon as we bury dad, I'm going to find you and I'm going to kill you. That's Esau's last words to Jacob. And so when Jacob finds out that he is going to cross paths with Esau, he is fearful. He is convinced that he's a goner. And so what does Jacob do? He prays in desperation. And he says, O God of my fathers, I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown your servant. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother. He is pleading for mercy. He is not pleading for justice. Justice would be the overcoming of Jacob and his family, the plundering of all of the resources that Jacob stole from his brother. Jacob is not pleading to God in his moment of desperation for justice. He is pleading for mercy. Jacob then sent Esau a bunch of gifts. Remember this? This is before the famine when Jacob was a really wealthy man. He had all of these flocks. And he says, send a herd of goats, then a herd of sheep, then a herd of lambs and bulls. And, and basically, I want to communicate to Esau that I am paying back the blessing I stole in hopes that Esau knows that my intentions are not bad, not ill but I want to reconcile. I want to repent. And so here in this text, Jacob again in this moment of desperation is calling upon God for mercy. And so look at verse 11 now in our text. Then their father Israel, Jacob said to them, if it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags, carry a present down to the man, a little balm 
and a little honey. Now, notice it's a little. They don't have a lot. It's a famine. So just a little token, a little way to communicate to this vizier, this governor of Egypt, that our intentions are good. Take a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almond. After all, we are in the land of milk and honey. Take double the money, verse 12. Food we don't have, money we have. It's meaningless without food, but take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was in oversight. So again, Jacob is doing the same thing. He's sending the gifts ahead like he did with Esau. He's sending the gifts ahead to communicate to this Egyptian ruler what his intentions are. But then finally, Jacob utters the most important words for his sons to hear and for us to hear this morning. This is the key verse in the entire text, and this is to sink into our hearts and minds. Verse 14. Jacob says, may God Almighty, may El Shaddai grant you mercy before the man. And may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, I am bereaved of my children. I am bereaved. Meaning I am now given to the fact that I may never see my children again. See, Jacob knew from experience that you can and should make every effort to do the right thing. But at the end of the day, it is God who grants mercy to his people. It is God who grants mercy, compassion, favor to his people. Notice that Jacob doesn't call on El Shaddai to grant his sons justice. Justice would not have gone well for these 10 brothers. Just like justice would not have gone well for Jacob when he was in his bind of desperation before Esau. No, Jacob does not call for justice from El Shaddai. He calls for God Almighty to grant mercy. And at the end of the day, this is our and their only hope, the mercy of God. Let me just apply this briefly before we move on for your ears and mine. At one point or another, beloved saints of God and visitors and friends, God will bring all of his people to this same place of desperation where our only hope is the granting of God's divine mercy. God will bring all of his people to a place where we become utterly convinced that horses and chariots cannot deliver. Where money in the bank or prestige or reputation from the past will only mock you in your present moment of trial. God will bring all of his people to a place where education and intellect falls sorrowfully short to rescue. God will bring all of his people to a place where they declare that the only thing they can depend on in the entire universe is the mercy of God Almighty. And so, we'll talk more about that in just a moment. Desperate times, 
called for desperate measures. And now our next scene comes with an unexpected invitation, which is an understatement. This is an unexpected invitation. Joseph now sees his brothers. And we don't know how this happened. Joseph is on some perch, right, in Egypt. He sees his brother's caravan coming. Obviously, he knows it's them. He knows their mannerisms. He knows his brothers. He sees them coming. They don't see him. But then Joseph then commands the steward of his house, who is an Egyptian steward, to slaughter an animal, to make a feast ready, and invite his brothers in over to his house for lunch at noon. Now, this invitation for lunch at the home of the viceroy, the, the, the vizier, the, the ruler, the governor in Egypt, is unsettling for the brothers. This is not like, oh, good, lunch. This sounds like a promising thing. We're in the middle of a famine, and he's inviting us over for lunch. How kind of him to do so. This would not have and was not received by the brothers at all with this kind of attitude. This was terrifying to them. Their first trip when they met Joseph, though they didn't know it was him, was met with rough speech, testing, and interrogation. He made, he made nothing known that there was compassion or mercy at all in his heart. But now on their second trip, they're invited over to the governor's house for a meal? I don't think so. There's something else going on here. This smells fishy. And I suppose I'm going to regret this analogy now, but I'm going to give it anyway, and I don't recommend movies ever. Um, but in the first Godfather... A movie I do not recommend. There's a scene in this movie where Michael Corleone, he gets word that his brother, Fredo, has betrayed the family. You remember this? And he's, well, don't look it up. This is what happens. (laughs) And he's torn to pieces because it's his older brother. But his older brother has put everybody in jeopardy. He's betrayed the family and he's torn and he knows what he has to do. He's got to take care of it. And so he invites his oldest brother, Fredo, to go fishing. And so they go fishing, and of course, Fredo comes in, and he knows what's coming. And they go fishing, and Michael Corleone then deals with his brother. They don't go fishing. The fish do eat, but they don't go fishing. The same thing is happening, I feel, in this text. They're thinking, something isn't right here. This this kind of feels like we're walking into a trap. The brothers are convinced that this Egyptian ruler is going to invite them over for lunch, but then assault them and make them slaves. They're convinced of it. And their consciences have been breached. They're broken. They've got godly sorrow. They've got godly fear. Now they're fearful of their own lives. And so they are desperate again. They're desperate. And they plead their case. And the first person they see is the steward of the, of the home. And so they go and just spill the beans. Look at verse 19 and following. So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house. And they said, oh, my Lord, hear the panic now in their voice. They think they're going to die in this home. 
Oh, oh, my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food. And when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks, and there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we have brought it again with us. And we have brought other money down with us to buy food. So they're saying, there's been a big mistake. Somebody in accounting has oversought this, and there's been a big mistake. Nobody took our money. We have the money that we came down with last time. And by the way, we're coming to do more business with you. Please know that we did not try to swindle anything from the Egyptian empire. So we have brought it again with us, verse 22, and we have brought other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. All of that is true. Their consciences again have been pricked. They are no longer operating on mere self-preservation. Something is happening inside of them. Honesty is finally pouring out. All they have is the truth. And they are met with the mercy of God from an unlikely source. Listen to verse 30, rather 23. And he, the steward of the house, replied, Peace to you. Shalom lechem. He gives them a Hebrew idiom. Shalom lechem, little Hebrews. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your fathers has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. They receive peace and mercy from an Egyptian pagan doorkeeper. Shalom, Lechem. Kent Hughes in his commentary writes this, quote, the steward of the home was not describing a miracle like God dropping money in their sacks during a flyover. No, the stewards knew exactly who, the steward knew exactly who put the money into the sacks and was not trying to deceive the brothers. Instead, his point was that their God had been at work through human agents. Oh, yes, God did put the money back, and he did it through this steward, through human agents. What an unlikely source of mercy and shalom. A pagan Egyptian servant grants peace to panicked Hebrew brothers. Your God has been at work for you. So desperate times lead to an unexpected invitation which now leads to this announcement of peace with God from an unlikely source. And finally, our final scene, the brothers find themselves feasting on God's mercy. This will be our final scene this morning. They finally find themselves feasting on God's mercy. Well, as good Hebrews, they washed their feet They prepared their present for Joseph. They didn't have much. I don't know if you've been to a dinner party where you felt like you were, you know, underdressed and you're sort of out of sorts and you kind of make the thing you brought maybe puffed up a little bit more, like bring the honey to the front. Let them see the honey first, even though it's a little that'll catch you, and then prop everything up. Put like newspaper under the bottom and prop everything up. That's how they're they're preparing this gift. And they thought that they would be eating bread. 
they thought that they would be eating bread in the middle of a famine. But little did they know that a feast was being prepared for them. They didn't know Joseph had already said to his servants, slaughter an animal. We are going to have a feast, not bread, a feast. Look at verse 26 and following. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present that they had with them and bowed down to him to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, is your father well? Literally in the Hebrew, does your father have shalom? So Joseph is tipping his hand little by little. That would have been a Hebrew understanding. Shalom. Does, my, does our father have peace? The old man of whom you spoke, is he still alive? They said, a bit still confused, your father or your servant, our father, is well. He does have shalom. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves, meaning they got all the way down and their faces were on the ground. Wondering if that's when they're going to lose their heads. With a little gift before them, pitiful. Verse 29, and he... Joseph lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son. Now, this is his only full-blooded brother, the only other son of Rachel, the beloved Rachel. It was Joseph and it was Benjamin. They were the babies. He lifts up his eyes and he sees Benjamin, his full-blooded brother, and he said, is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Feel the weight of that emotion. Then verse 30, Joseph hurried out for his compassion or mercy grew warm for his brother and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. Verse 31, then he washed his face and came out and controlling himself he said, serve the food. As we've been discovering and will discover more as we finish Genesis, there is so much irony in these stories. 20 years before this moment, it was Joseph's brothers who were eating a meal while Joseph begged for his life in the bottom of a pit. They feasted while Joseph was fearfully pleading for his life. Now, Joseph is feeding them in the middle of a famine when they are in their pit, so to speak, when they are in their most desperate need of rescue and mercy. It's Joseph who is feeding them. 
And obviously, Joseph is overcome with emotion. What do you do? Your flesh wants to kill these guys. But just as the fear of the Lord was replacing self-preservation in the brothers, as that is happening in the brothers, mercy and compassion was replacing hurt and anger in the heart of Joseph. God always works on both ends. He is always doing more than we think. God is always dynamic. He's working on the heart of the brothers, and then he's working forgiveness in the heart of Joseph. And both require unilateral action by God. Both require God to get into the fallow places of the human heart and to cause godly fear and repentance and to cause compassion and forgiveness. His compassion grew warm, the text says. I don't know if you felt that. What a descriptive way to talk about compassion or mercy in your heart. And he sought a place to weep. Customarily, Egyptians don't eat with Hebrews. It's my understanding they don't eat with anybody except for Egyptians. And so Joseph, in this feast, was served by himself. He's, he's the, the governor. He's the royalty in the room. And so he eats whatever he wants. And the Hebrews and the Egyptians in the house were separated. <laughs> but what happens next? Caught the brothers and this preacher by total surprise. And it caused amazement in these brothers. When they went to sit down for dinner, to their surprise, there was assigned seating. There was a seating chart. Like at a wedding, when you go and you see, you know, where you're going to be sitting, what table. Something like that, where there was assigned seating in the home. And as they went to sat, sit down in their seats, they were astonished to find that the brothers had been arranged from oldest to youngest. Look at verse 33. And they sat before him, Joseph, the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Surely part of their amazement, part of their thought process is that there must be going more going on here that meets the eye. Here the brothers are lined up from the oldest to the youngest, but there is one brother missing. But he's not missing. He's the one eating right before them. So you see Benjamin and then a gap and then the older and then the older and the older And they're astonished. They're amazed. Not only that they're not eating bread, <laughs> but they're feasting. And their seating chart lines up perfectly with their birth order. Well, the night is going well. 
Drinks are flowing. But Joseph has one more test for his brothers. He's still not sure if their hearts have been softened by the Lord. So one more test comes in verse 34 as we close. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, and this is customary. Those portions were from the hosts to the guests. But look at what happens next. Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. And they drank and were merry with him. Now, what's going on here? Why does Joseph have five times the portion to his youngest brother? I think the clearest answer is he's testing his other brothers to see if envy and jealousy is still in their hearts. Remember what provoked their anger and jealousy toward Joseph as he strutted around the house in that coat of many colors and the favoritism of Jacob toward Joseph steamed within the hearts of his brothers envy and rivalry and jealousy. Here, Joseph says, I've got a really good idea. I'm going to, in the middle of a famine, give five times more to Benjamin than anyone else, and I'm going to see how they react. Do they complain? Why does Benjamin get more? Can I get a little bit more? You should save some of that for dad. And he waits, and he watches. But no such signs of jealousy It seems they were all content with their portions. Why? What has changed? I'm convinced these brothers were not just feasting on the food before them. But also... They were feasting on the mercy of God this entire journey. Remember, there are two famines in the land. And the moral famine had ravaged their hearts. And now God is not only bringing godly fear, not only bringing godly sorrow, but now supplying the divine mercy of God to be their food. The prayer of their father Jacob had come to pass. God Almighty had granted them mercy. Which, by the way, is the only way you receive mercy is if God grants it. And so we learn this invaluable truth, invaluable principle. Experiencing desperate need led these brothers to experience divine mercy. In the middle of a worldwide famine, God was addressing again the moral famine in the hearts of these young patriarchs. And so the question is, what about us this morning? What about your hearts? What about my heart? Has God granted you to feel your spiritual hunger? Are you desperate to feast upon the mercy of God? The late R.C. Sproul writes this, quote, Mercy, unexpected love and generosity cannot be showered upon us as something owed because mercy that is owed is not mercy but obligation. Mercy can be given only to those in a desperate situation 
who cannot help themselves and lack, lack the capability to earn or pay it back. That's exactly the place these boys are in. They are in a place of desperate need and they cannot pay back what they are receiving. And there is no better way, Sproul says, no better way to describe our situation apart from Christ than utterly and hopelessly desperate. So then Genesis 43 shows us, doesn't it, how God Almighty caused desperate hunger for his mercy in the hearts of Joseph, Joseph's brothers. They were brought to the end of their abilities. They were at the mercy of God and they found a God who is full of mercy. As we close, I realize we live in a, in a fast-paced culture, a bubble that is Orange County. And we're constantly looking for life hacks. We're constantly looking for supplements. We're constantly looking for, a few years ago, I remember I was at Mother's looking for like supplements that help me think clearer. <laughs> like brain food, right? Like, is, there, is there a way to like turn this thing on by just taking a pill? I think often we treat mercy and grace like a supplement. Like, like Jesus is like a wheatgrass shot. He's like an additive to my life so I can be healthy. Beloved saints, especially those of you who are not Christians and you're very curious about what Christianity is, please listen. The Bible is crystal clear. Jesus Christ is not a supplement He's a substitute. He's the substance. He's the replacement. He's the only hope of life and death. The mercy of God through the sacrifice of the Son is not a supplement. It's not an additive. It's not a little prayer in the morning and the rest of your life is your own. No, it's all or nothing. It's desperate need. If you don't need him, you won't want him. Oh, beloved, pray for the desperate need of his mercy to come in. Don't hear another sermon and go, oh, the mercy of God, sprinkle it on my life. No, pray for a heart cut wide open, a soul ready to drink. Pray that God would make you aware, and here's a very bold prayer. Make me aware of my ongoing need for mercy. That's scary and good for your soul. Because those of us who have been walking with Jesus for a long time will know that we need his mercy every moment. Jesus Christ is the full rescue for those who are in desperate need of his mercy. For those who are utterly convinced that horses and chariots are not enough. Moral performance is not enough. Intellect is not enough. These brothers were hoping for bread. There's something to tide them over. But a feast was prepared before them. May God grant us desperate need that we might feast upon his mercy. Let's pray. Father in heaven, God Almighty, would you grant us a desperate need 
for your mercy. We learn from your word that you, God, are rich in mercy. You have it in abundance. There is no famine of mercy in your economy. Your storehouses are full. And so would you grant us an awareness of our spiritual hunger and would you open the storehouses of your mercy to nourish our souls now and for a lifetime. We pray this now in your precious son's name. Amen.